Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Ed Lin, former head of global product marketing for payments and point of sale at Square. In keeping with the spirit of adventures and growth, Ed charted his course to tech leadership via a non-traditional route, working in finance prior to attaining an MBA at the Kellogg School of Management. After graduation, Ed applied his analytical acumen to a new career, focused on digital marketing and later product marketing within fintech across roles at Discover, Wells Fargo, Affirm, and Square. In this episode, Ed shares insights from his career journey, and we dive deep into what it takes to be a product marketer, what it is, what it isn't, how it connects customer insights and the go-to-market strategy, how the role can differ across companies, and how to be successful as a world-class product marketer. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. Ed Lin, welcome to Adventures in Growth. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really looking forward to the discussion today. But before we dive in, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days at Square and and what your role entails? Yeah, so I've been at Square for almost seven years now. I currently lead our product marketing team for both our payments and Square point of sale products at Square. And the whole purpose of Square is to help businesses to start, run, and grow businesses of all sizes around the world. You may also know of our sister organizations, Cash App and Title, that are within the same block uh, parent. Prior to being on these two products, I was on our banking uh, team working on proliferating loans, checking accounts, savings accounts for small businesses to help them with their cash flows. I've been in finance for the last 21 years and have worked both on the traditional banking side as well as on the fintech space. Yeah, that's a great summary of, of your experience. And I think one thing we really want to dig into a little bit is to that end, like what is product marketing? We talked about this before and, and obviously there's a a range, but we'd love to get your perspective on what product marketing is and and what it isn't. Yeah. So product marketing at its very nature is knowing the customer, doing what's best for them and owning the results. I think generally across the industry, people really resonate with that mantra, but PM is distinct depending on what organization you go to. So some organizations really focus on the first part of the life cycle for customers. So really thinking about what that product strategy um, should be, what are the products and features that would best serve the, the pain points of those customers, and what they should ultimately roll out on the product roadmap. There are other organizations that focus more on the latter side of the customer life cycle. So thinking about the go-to-market side of things, acquisition or retention of customers for products and features that have already launched or that will launch. At Square, we actually have a unique scenario where we do both. So we champion the voice of the customer in everything that the, the company does from 
building remarkable products and go-to-market experiences to acquiring new customers to our ecosystem, to ultimately strengthening loyalty with existing customers. So we really do span sort of the full life cycle of the seller from conception of a product and a feature to launch of that product to iteration of that product and learning, and then ultimately getting those sellers to adopt Square and then ultimately use that for the remainder of their life stage with Square. PMM in this regards really is a, a quarterback of many different initiatives, and we work really closely with our product managers, engineers, designers, data scientists on our teams, but then also with our cross-functional go-to-market partners. So we have a centralized marketing team, centralized sales, account management, partnerships, customer success. So we are working really closely with all these different partners to create a cohesive strategy across the lifecycle. That's a great summary. And I, I want to kind of dig into the life cycle a bit more in a second. But to that end, when you've evaluated career options, how have you determined where product marketing sits within the organization to make sure you have the voice or the visibility that you think you need to be successful? It's really about talking to individuals within the organizations. And so when I moved to Square, I had both a traditional marketing background, but also a strategy background. And I was looking for an opportunity to mix both of them. And so I spoke to a number of different companies about what opportunities were available and really wanted to make sure that I wasn't just driving the go-to-market for existing products and features, but really having also an impact on the product roadmap itself. Apart from the, you know, maybe not getting siloed into kind of a very focused tactical go-to-market, any other red flags for you as you were looking at, you know, at, at other kinds of opportunities? So I think it was really about how much marketing could impact what a remarkable product experience could be, right? Like, I think one of the things that I've learned is you can't, like a great marketer can't sell everything. You can't just pump a bunch of awareness dollars, hire a bunch of influencers, get a bunch of billboard ads out there and expect that you can sell the product. You really need to have a remarkable experience. And even if you like don't have a bunch of marketing around that, if it's a truly remarkable experience, your product should be able to sell and your product should be able to retain. And so what I wanted to make sure of was that I wasn't coming into a role where it's like, here you go, here's the, the products that we want you to sell. It was really about like, let's just make sure that there's true product market fit with these products before we even think about the go-to-market plan or the go-to-market strategy. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, you asked those questions that like what were the things that you would dig into during that interview process? You touched on a couple there, but like, how would you frame that assessment? So for anyone listening, as they're thinking about a, a role in PMM, they can make that same determination. It's really about understanding the operating model of the organization. So where does PMM sit? Is it in a separate part of the organization? Is it embedded within the product teams? And then also, what do the operating mechanisms look like for PMMs versus the more traditional product development teams that are product managers, engineers, designers? What does that working relationship look like? If the answer is PMM is in a silo, they receive the requirements from the product development team of what they need to market and what they need to sell, then that's a big red flag, at least for me in terms of what I wanted. But if that seemed like a 
really cohesive working environment, taking into consideration what PMM was bringing to the table, really incorporating that into the strategy, and how that pairing of PMM with the other parts of the organization looked like, like that was a really important thing for me to, to suss out. And so at Square, our PMMs are embedded into the product teams. So we roll up to the same general managers as product managers, designers, engineers, data scientists, et cetera. So I would say that PM and PM are very similar, particularly in the upfront lifecycle of, of the seller or of the customer for that matter, and really thinking about what is that product strategy. So both PMs and PMs should have extreme customer empathy, really understanding the pain points of the customers that they're trying to serve. Also looking at things like what does the market look like? Um, what is the size of the market that we're going after? Is it large enough of a TAM that it makes a business sense to go after those customers? And then really ideating on what a good product solution would be. Once we have a product to actually then bring to market that we feel has potential for product market fit and that we can win in the market, that's where I think the roles diverge a bit. Where the product managers really are leading the engineering and design teams to build those products and features. Whereas the PM is thinking about the go-to-market strategy. So identifying who the target audience is, what are the value propositions and the messaging that we should use to acquire those customers? How do we leverage our different go-to-market teams like marketing and sales and account management to actually acquire those customers? And then ultimately, as those customers on board to your product, how do you make sure that they remain happy and, and loyal customers? So that's really where I see that divergence happening. But I think that they're really tied, PM, PMMs and PMs are tied to the hip. And that strategy for both product and go-to-market should be really cohesive. It's really interesting here, hearing you describe to that point, the differentiation, because as you're saying those things, I think a good PM should also be thinking about go-to-market and distribution and acquisition and how you activate and then retain and you know drive someone through that product experience. As you become more senior, do you think that differentiation between product management and product marketing management dissipates a bit? Do you think it, they, they become more alike than less alike uh, at more junior level? Yeah, I think the best relationship is one where the goals are absolutely aligned and that the mission of the PM and the PMM are identical. And throughout the entire product development process, both functions should be in the thick of things. So for instance, as we are, you know, launching products through an MVP or an alpha or a beta, PM should be there also. Um, being able to talk to those customers, understand, is this actually meeting your needs? What are the challenges that you're still facing, even though PM is really leading those launches? So I think while there will be different skill sets that could lend more to a PM or a PM uh, success, I think that like the the discussions throughout the whole entire process should be really cohesive and that we should be leveraging learnings across both functions. Yeah. When you've joined new organizations, what have you done to try and ensure success within those first 90 days to give yourself breathing space and some degree of credibility to be able to put, imprint your ideas on the organization? So there are two really important stakeholders to be uh, in discussions with. One are the customers. So really understand 
who those customers are, what their pain points are, what they're currently using to solve those pain points, and what would, if they had a magic wand, what would they want in order to really make their lives um, easier? So really being able to ground in who you're trying to serve. The second big uh, stakeholder is basically everybody else in the organization that's working on the same problem space. So what have they learned already? What are their hypotheses? What are the struggles that they're facing? So that you can really come to a strategy that is informed by what the customer needs, but what's also what the team needs. How can you help where the team is currently and how, how to progress the team forward? On the corollary of that, on the flip side, when you've hired new team members at a more junior level, so for some of these entry-level PMMs or, or mid-level, how are you assessing them as their manager? What are the key attributes you look for them to show you that they can do the job and that they're going to be successful in the role? Yeah, I think there are a handful of key attributes um, that would make a PMM successful. So one is having just extreme customer empathy. I think anybody who comes um, through our interviews and says, hey, the main goal of a PMM is to drive business performance without talking about actually serving the needs of our customers is an automatic red flag for me. So we really do need to lead with customer empathy. And if we take care of our customers, then the business performance comes from that. Second is being strategic. So can this person leverage customer insights, market data, data about our existing customers and how they're using the products, as well as competitive analysis to inform what the product and the go-to-market uh, strategy should look like. And does this individual have an experimentation mindset? So based upon the data and the insights that they're gathering, are they creating hypotheses of what the problem statement is? Are they coming up with hypotheses of what the solutions are? And then ultimately being able to experiment with, with those hypotheses in order to validate them. The third is creativity. So being able to translate these business requirements for the customer into messaging and marketing and assets that would really resonate with those customers. How can you best curate and personalize those messages to really address the specific needs of those customers, but in a way that really breaks out from all the noise in the industry, all the competition that's going after the same customers. And then the fourth is about being an ambassador. So I mentioned that PMM works with many different cross-functional teams and often has to quarterback all of those uh, initiatives. And so how does that individual build those relationships with cross-functional teams in order to get that buy-in, but also excitement from those teams to work on those initiatives? Apart from, you know, you, you kind of set this up before in the beginning where, you know, there are kind of two major areas where PMM tends to play in terms of the customer journey. Is there any other way you think about taxonomy of, of product marketers, you know, at particularly at large organizations in terms of skill sets you look for kind of different focus areas as, as you kind of move a layer or two deeper than those general buckets? Yeah, so I think what you're starting to see within product marketing it, are a little bit more specialization based on where the product is in its own life stage. So in the for more nascent products or features, or even markets for that matter, if you're entering a new market, the PM skill set that we really need at that point is to establish product market fit. So is this individual more strategic in nature? 
really being able to leverage data, leverage insights in order to inform what a product market fit means and to meet certain exit criteria in order for us to be able to even be able to scale a product like that. So, you know, looking at things like not only adoption of the product, but also how the customer is utilizing it. Is there a lot of churn or are we retaining those customers? Looking at things like a CSAT and NPS in order to really understand the satisfaction that those customers have with the product. So there are PMs that are a little bit more focused on sort of that first part of the customer lifecycle. And then once you actually have a product that has good product market fit or a market where we believe we have resonance with those customers, then the focus can be more around growth. And so we um, have been hiring PMs that have more of that growth um, skill set of looking at the funnel and identifying where are their drop-offs in the conversion funnel or in the retention funnel, for that matter, that present the biggest opportunity for us to, to hone in on. Doing the customer insights research to understand why is there breakage in the funnel? Why are people dropping off at different stages? And then coming up with different hypotheses and experiments to run in a quick fashion to see if we're actually moving the needle on conversion rate between um, those different funnel stages. So it's a slightly different mindset and skill set, but really based off of where we are with that product stage, life stage, as well as the market life stage. I noticed you didn't, and maybe this is because I've, I've spent the last few years leading marketing at marketplaces where there's a B2B demand side and a more of a B2C supply side, but B2B, B2C, is that something that, you know, as people who are listening to this podcast who are thinking about getting into product marketing, that's, again, that's, from my own experience, has been kind of the first razor in terms of just how do we structurally build out a team from zero, but how have you thought about that and how have you coached other people to think about kind of B2B, B2C in terms of either career path or hiring? So I think there are different channels and there's different tactics for B2B and for B2C. At the end of the day, you're speaking to a human. And so you should always remember that whatever messaging that you use, whatever approach that you use, you should always have that human empathy of how would you want to be communicated to? What is clear from a messaging perspective to any individual, you know, no matter what background that they're coming from? From a B2B perspective, it really is more about working with our the sales team who is doing more of that outbound and inbound prospecting to work with the lead generation team on your marketing team to think through how do you capture those you know bigger customers how do you best utilize content to draw those customers in how do you use account based marketing you know sending cakes to the CFOs of those businesses to actually take your call, um, going to different trade shows and events in order to, to get your brand out there and to be able to have your sales team interface with prospects. On the B2C side, it's much more of marketing to the, the masses in different channels that you can use on a broad scale. So thinking through channels like social or search or SEO, your public website and how to best leverage that as a messaging um, vehicle to, to more broad consumers. Um, but at the end of the day, as you think about the positioning and you think about the messaging and the value propositions, everybody should be thinking about it from a more of a consumer angle and from a human angle. 
You've referenced Lifecycle a few times and talked about different pieces of it. Can you just give us a breakdown of how you think about the Lifecycle and what those stages are? Sure, absolutely. So I think at the very beginning, it's conception. So what is the actual product or the feature that you think the company should be launching? So that's where the PMM focuses in on what are the customer insights that we're, we're hearing? What are the big pain points that customers are facing that haven't been solved by, by competitors out there? Doing market and industry analysis. What are the big markets out there that we should be going after? What is the size of the total addressable market for those different audiences? And does it really make sense from an ROI perspective to be going after those audiences? And then really being able to build the business case for why you should be launching that product and feature and why you should be going after your target audiences. And then from there, it's really leading into a hypothesis of what a potential minimal, minimum remarkable product could be in order to really test and, and validate your hypothesis. From there, you sort of go into the iteration phase of let's actually go out there and, and test with customers. Let's you know get a handful of maybe your friendly customers who are already working with your company to be able to try out the product for free. You know, give feedback on what's working well and what's not working well until you are able to hit certain stage gates uh, to basically say, yes, we can feel free uh, to actually bring this to the mass market because we feel like we have good product market fit and that we're able to address the customer's needs in a differentiated way. Then you actually go into the go-to-market phase of things where you're actually thinking about based upon your target audience and their pain points, what is the right positioning for those customers? What are the value propositions that you should be really leading with? Because those are what uh, matters to those customers and, and what pain points those address. What is the right messaging? How do you curate the messaging to potentially different sub-segments of your target population? You're also thinking about things like pricing and packaging. Um, what are the particular bundles of, of features that you should be putting together to address specific needs of different sub uh, segments of your target audience? And how might you want to price those features based upon what you believe the value to be for those customers and their willingness to pay? And then really thinking about how you create your whole channel strategy, thinking about paid marketing, earned and owned marketing, sales, account management, in order to really be able to get that message out to your uh, target audience. And then there's adoption, right? So like actually activating all of those channels and all that messaging, learning from them, optimizing, right? You're going to be able to see what works, what doesn't, how do you continuously do experimentation to see how you can optimize both acquisition as well as retention. And then ultimately from a retention perspective, just keeping a finger on the pulse of your customers to make sure that they are happy with the product over time, right? So not just at the beginning when they're first utilizing it, but you know, one year, two year, three years down the line, actually at Square, the majority of our growth comes from uh, what we call mature cohorts. So those sellers that uh, came onto Square several years ago, you know, have been using our products for quite some time. But since then, we know that competition has come in to the space as well. And so how are we making sure that we keep those customers happy? And then over the course of their life stage with us, also making sure that we bring up the 
different products and the different features within the entire Score ecosystem that could best meet their needs as well. So just making sure that they are utilizing the full breadth of our ecosystem to keep them happy and satisfied with us. That's a really great breakdown of the stage by stage. I appreciate you sharing that. And something we talked about before very broadly is how to be successful, but how to differentiate when you're going through that life cycle. Like how have you thought about that when you've built your career to get to the point where you are today to stand out from the crowd when you're you know, obviously competing for a role or trying to get into a, an organization like Square? So I think it's really about, number one, making sure that you're constantly looking at the data. So as you're moving through each of these stages of the life cycle, how do you consistently have a finger on the pulse of where your business is? And that involves a very strong partnership with your analytics team or your data science team. How are you building out those dashboards so that you can just keep an eye on each of these different phases and you know at the very beginning it is about making sure that you're hitting product milestones in order to feel good about actually launching a product or a feature that um, has good product market fit but then once you actually get into the scaling mode how do you make sure that you aren't seeing drop-offs in the funnel you aren't seeing drop-offs in performance that you should really be able to react to in a in a really fast way so i would say number one make sure that pmms always have a finger on the pulse of the performance throughout the life cycle the second is really making sure that you always have a finger on the pulse of your customers as well so that could involve more formal standardized customer research like nps and csat studies that you could do we at Square do them on a, a, a semi-annual basis, but also just making sure that you're collecting feedback at any given time that the customer wants to provide that. So talking to your sales team, talking to your customer success team, what are they hearing from the sellers day in and day out about what they like about the product experience and what they don't like about the product experience? Even just talking to customers as you have the opportunity. So I am now trained working at Square. If I go into a, a restaurant or go into a retailer and I see that they're using Square, to ask the question, how do you like using Square? What are the things that are remarkable to you? What are the things that are pain points? And I will be the first to admit that sometimes they have questions or they have problems that I can't solve. But I go back to my team and I say, we need to to look into this and then contact that customer back because they're counting on us. And I, I think in some circumstances, those customers are actually surprised that we reach back out. And you know, we say, hey, we've heard that you had XYZ issue. Here's a solution for you. But I think by doing so, that also just makes sure that we are smarter on the business side of things, that we're just consistently knowing how our product works and the experience that our sellers are having with our products. That's awesome. Any any advice you would give for maybe an earlier stage company that's kind of building up their voice of the customer program and trying to think about how to implement, you know, and you mentioned, that, you know, kind of the beauty of having the cross-functional views into it, obviously, which is so crucial. But for a company looking to go zero to one on that, any advice for where to start? Everybody should be involved in understanding the customer. So your CEO, your product individuals, your creative team members, everybody should have a finger on the pulse of what the customer wants. And that could be trying to involve them in research studies um, where they could really just be in the room. 
And, you know, I've been in a room with several different cross-functional teams where I might be leading and moderating the customer research, but they're passing notes back and forth to me about questions that they have, about things that they want to de- uh, delve deeper into. Going out and just even experiencing what life is like for your customers as well, doing those ethnographies where it doesn't need to be even related to your product, but just even understanding what is the experience that your customers have day in and day out and what are the pain points that your product can solve now or your product can solve in, in the future. And then if anything, if you know people are too busy to participate in the, that market research from the very get-go, just making sure that whoever is doing that customer research is sharing those insights in, in a way that can be cross-functional. So even here at Square, we make sure that when we do readouts of our customer research, we have people that are from our product management team, from our design team, from even our finance and strategy teams in the room to be able to hear the voice of the customer and to be able to really understand the customers that we're trying to serve. Yeah, it's a great a great um, summary. And you touched on something there. You talked about leading moderation. I assume now that you're global head of product marketing, your role has changed somewhat. And so can you give us a little sense as to what the role looks like as a global head and, and what principles as a leader do you try and instill within your team to give them the foundations for success? Yeah, absolutely. So we fundamentally believe that We need to be subject matter experts on the markets that we have our presence in. And so at Square, I have PMMs that are embedded into the markets to be able to talk to those customers on a daily basis to understand what their struggles are because they're going into those coffee shops. They're going in to get their hair done at these salons and that they also just have market understanding as well. Like what is cultural? culturally relevant in these markets? How should we be building our product and go-to-market experience to make sure that we are curating to that particular market? So I have PMMs that are really representing the voice of the customer around the world. And then I think it is about prioritization uh, from there. So you know, while we have our presence in each of these different markets, it is not going to be feasible given the resources that we have to be able to address each of those in an equitable fashion. So it is really about making sure that we have understanding of what is the opportunity that we're going after? You know, what are the pain points that we're trying to solve in each of the different markets? And how do we best leverage our product management, our engineering, our data science resources in a way that can capture the biggest opportunities? And sometimes that means making trade-offs on different markets. Um, Some markets may have more support uh, during the year than other markets, but being able to make that strategic decision on a leadership level and communicating that to my team very clearly about the trade-offs and resources um, has been really critical so that it doesn't seem like our PMMs in each of the markets have to fight amongst themselves for that resourcing, but we are really being able to provide that guidance from a leadership perspective. What have you done to that end to help your PMMs be successful in each of those different areas? And and how do you think about that aspect of coaching or mentorship now that you're head of the function? Yeah. So my philosophy is my PMMs in each of the markets are the CMOs 
of, of their markets. I'm not going to know their markets as well as they do. I'm not going to be as close to the customers or the work that they do as they do. So I really do trust them in terms of making those strategic decisions. Where I can help is to provide guidance if they need it. So they will come and ask questions about like, hey, I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z, or I'm really you know struggling with X, Y, and Z, and how can I provide that advice? The other is where they feel blocked. How can I get resources for them? Or how can I help to work with different cross-functional teams in order to gain that alignment that can really help to unblock their initiatives? But at the end of the day, it's really about empowering our PMs in each of the markets and being able to allow them to, to really flourish on their own. And then also just giving them advice of there are certain things that are under their control and there are certain things that are not within their control. The things that they that are under their control maximize them, right? So a lot of our go-to-market isn't dependent on product or engineering resources. They can work with our central marketing teams in each of these countries. They can work with the sales teams um, in order to really be able to drive growth in the things that they can control the best. And then there are certain things that may not be in their control that do require product and engineering resources that are more product specific. And in those circumstances, the leadership team will do our best in order to you know, provide those resources based upon where the opportunity is. But just making sure that PMMs do feel that they are empowered in driving something that is under their control. From your perspective, you've, you mentioned earlier that you've worked obviously at more traditional brand in more traditional brand roles or more traditional companies within finance than now pure tech play square and obviously block as the parent company what in your mind makes a good manager or what experiences have you had where you thought that person's really accelerated your career versus those instances where that's not been the case I feel like the best managers are the ones that truly empower their employees to be successful and that that requires not micromanaging, but really understanding where your employee is in terms of development, in terms of what their goals are, and being able to provide the right guidance to them based upon where they are um, and what they're asking for. And so for me, I really do think about my PMMs as um, the chief marketing officers, and they should be running the show unless they've come to me and said, hey, I need to have XYZ you know, development. And that's where I can personalize that, that, that development for them. I would also say that a good leader is one that actually creates a strong vision for what the team is trying to accomplish, as well as how that ladders up to the overall organization. And so, so long as the team member understands that vision, they can then come up from a bottoms-up perspective with how they want to achieve that vision. We should not be the ones who are dictating, this should be what your roadmap looks like. These are the very granular things that you should be accomplishing. It really is about setting that vision up and probably even coming up with OKRs and the goals that our team members are expected to hit, but then ultimately leaving it up to them to come up with the best ways to achieve those. Has your kind of putting this into action changed, you know, in a kind of hybrid, you know, remote first environment? Is that, have you, I guess, how have you thought about adapting your leadership style or, or coaching, you know, people leaders in your, or people managers in your org to coach through remote? It's become even more important in a remote, in a remote way. So I can't be in every meeting. I can't be in every time zone. And I do rely on my team members to make the best decision possible. 
And of course, I will be, you know, keeping an eye at a high level on things to make sure that, um, you know, things aren't falling off to the wayside of things, that performance isn't dropping off. But I do trust my and my team members to really be managing the business within their their respective markets. Square and Block for all intents and purposes has always been remote first. We are a global company. We've never been able to have individuals participate in meetings all at the same time. And so with this move to, to be more intentionally remote first, it's just really sort of accelerated that and made it more. But we expect that people won't be attending meetings that are not within their time zone. And that we would expect that um, we conduct our business in a more asynchronous way, utilizing Google Docs and Slack and giving people the opportunity if they're not able to participate live to input their thoughts and their opinions and to influence the decisions in a remote way, you know, versus having to make sure that you're in the meeting to get your voice heard. You mentioned something earlier on, which I want to come back to. You talked about the minimal remarkable product. What is that and how do you define that? So we define it as what is the product and the experience that we believe really solves the pain point that our customers have surfaced up to us, but investing just enough where we feel like we're not creating the entire experience that is truly differentiated from our uh, competitors and is the thing that we would be most proud to launch to a mass market. So something that we can go out to a handful of customers and really be able to test and get feedback on. And we are very upfront with these individuals about, hey, the the experience is not going to be perfect. There might be some things that are a bit wonky and maybe a little bit more, it will take more effort and time for them to sort of work through. But the intent of it is for them to be early adopters of the product and for them to be able to shape how the product or the future ultimately turns out. And so it's, you know, not launching something for testing that is just completely broken and we don't think we would actually get a good signal on, but something that we feel, hey, this is good enough that we feel like this actually adequately meets the needs of our customers. And and that's something that we can just work with those customers on to set the expectations of what they should be expecting from it. Yeah, it's, uh, I love that definition. I've heard minimum, minimal lovable solution, but I think you touched on something that's really important, isn't it? Which is, to your point, it's got to be actually good enough. And I think the bar's been raised because of the advances in technology and consumer expectations. You have to actually hit quite a high bar to be remarkable and not have people just throw your product out the door, you know, no questions asked. So I think it's, I, I just love the fact that you've given so much thought to what that should look like. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we know that our customers, they are, they already have a solution in place to address their needs, right? Whether that be with a competitor or they have a hacky way of solving for that need. And so we need to make sure that whatever we're putting out there is better than that, is remark- more remarkable than that, because the feedback that we would get otherwise is not going to be super helpful for us, right? Those customers are going to say, actually, like, we, don't, we hate this. Um, we don't think that we would use this. And so we would have to go back to the drawing board anyway. As you've built your career, getting to the point where you are now today, how, 
helpful has it been to have come from a brand background, perhaps a more traditional finance company? Do you think that's been a critical element of your success or do you think someone can still build a career without necessarily going down that path of being in brand? It's a good question. So my experience working on the more traditional banking side, I think has been helpful to give me the fundamentals of how financial products work and the more typical ways that customers would utilize them and the more typical ways that a company would offer them. Where I've seen this fall down in the past is to hire people with so much experience on the brand side or the traditional way of doing things is that they don't actually see a different way, right? They basically say like, this is the way that it's always been done. We've tried many different things in the past. And so there isn't a way around this. These are the ways that we should be doing things. And so I think we should, you know, when we look for talent, we do look for relevant experience, but we also look for an openness to challenge what they have done in the past. You know, are they open to reevaluating, you know, certain sacred cows in the industry, um, particularly where those products that exist in the market are not accessible? to all customers. And coming from a traditional banking side, I know that there are many populations um, out there that don't have access to financial products. They are completely outside of the scope of what banks go after because they're considered not profitable or too risky. And so when I looked for opportunities on the tech side, I wanted to challenge that and understand like what can we do from a technology perspective to actually be more inclusive, to be able to provide more financial access to those customers that typically don't have that. And that's where your opportunity is going to come from, to be able to unlock those large populations. It's, it's really interesting you mentioned that, isn't it? Because I do feel like the new wave of fintechs have had that luxury or opportunity to be much more mission-driven in their approach compared to the old incumbent banks, which were more like utilities. And just, you know, it's like, very much more financially orientated. But as you've built your career, you've, you've switched from that more traditional side into tech. How did you ma- manage that process? Like what were the key things that, that you, um, or the levers that you pulled in order to be able to do that? Yeah. So when I was ready to leave uh, traditional banking, I was at Wells Fargo at the time. I had moved back to the Bay Area and was looking for a local company, but with the same sort of uh, background that I had uh, known. And what I was looking for was a company that was much, much more nimble, that was much more in favor of helping sellers through innovation and technology. And I happened to come across an article about this new buy now, pay later product, which at the time, you know, in 20, late 2014, early 2015, wasn't even a thing in the US. You know, it was big in parts of Europe, it was big in parts of South America, but nobody had really even heard about that. But it was really fascinating because what the company was trying to do was open up access to credit where people were typically not given that access. So think about individuals who are just starting their credit journey. You know, people that are in college that have never had a credit card before, never had a loan before, and as a result, didn't have a FICO score, had a really low FICO score. And as a result of that, traditional banks wouldn't give them credit. People that are 
new to the country. They may have, you know, long histories of working in different countries, have great credit history in different countries, but it doesn't actually translate in the U.S. because they don't have a FICO, a traditional FICO score. So really being able to ground myself in a problem space that I felt really passionate about. And I knew that even if I had to take a step back in terms of title, in terms of team members on my team, in terms of salary for that matter, that I could really be working on a problem space that I that I really wanted to, to help um, from a societal perspective. And then at that point, like, you know, finding that company, um, it's called a firm. Um, at that time, it was Series B, um, had about 35 people at the company. I searched my network and looked for whatever connections I could for that company and actually found somebody that we went to business school with who had gone to undergrad with the then CFO of a firm. And so from there, you know, reached out. That person, I think, you know, hadn't really been in contact with their classmate, their old classmate in quite some time, but was like, hey, I'm willing to try this out because like, this is what our network is here for. Right. And so made that connection. I had coffee with the CFO. That CFO introduced me to other members of the the team. And I was essentially able to craft a role for myself at the company that didn't actually exist just from networking with individuals there, talking about the value that I could bring, but also just showing how excited uh, I was about their mission. I love that story because I think that's something that people often overlook, right? Which is that need to understand what role you want. And I think that openness, especially at earlier stage companies where they don't necessarily know what they need, but you can move into that space and say, look, this is what I can bring to your organization. And I think that's something in this market, especially that is really valuable and really important, which is understanding your own capability, but then understanding how, as you did, how to network into those roles and leverage that, that network that you have. Yeah, that's right. And then also just, I mean, for me, it was about making sacrifices, right? And so I knew, hey, like I had a very steady salary at Wells Fargo. I knew predictably, you know, what bonuses would look like, but it was very unpredictable on the startup phase. Like you could be, you could run out of cash in a year and, you know, I made very minimal salary. You know, I think a lot of the hope was in the the equity that we were, you know, granted. And then also just making sacrifices about the things that you're willing to do. Like I remember sitting closest to the front door when I first started at a firm and I opened the door for the Instacart delivery person because we didn't have a receptionist. I fixed the printer if it was broken because we didn't have a formal IT department. So just being able to understand what are the sacrifices that you're willing to make in order to get to where you want to, to be. Yeah, I think that's right. It's understanding the culture you're walking into and what you're willing to trade off on one hand in order to be able to move forward in another area. This has been an amazing discussion so far. Andy, do you have any more questions you want to dive into before we, we move on? Yeah, great. This has been awesome, Ed. I guess one one question I've, I've got, you know, you, we touched on a, a number of things, customer insights, go-to-market, pricing, you know, any advice for someone who's thinking about thinking about how they can best get into product marketing and maybe, you know, what's in short supply now and how can someone stand out who's looking to get into such a varied and, you know, kind of, you know, complicated sometimes role? From, from an entry standpoint? So I would say, you know, there, there may not be traditional product marketing roles at the company that you are interested in. And so I would say, like, talk to folks within the organization, as many parts of the organization as you can. 
understand where their needs are and how can you best help. I think the best product marketers are the ones that can come with a strategic mindset. And so we often get you know, candidates coming through that either have a traditional marketing background or a consulting background for that matter, or even a finance background where we know that they can look at data, they can look at insights and make um, strategic decisions there. So really being able to have conversations with these organizations about what you can bring to the table in terms of your skill sets and where that can really help these companies. I think a lot of companies now, um, given the downturn, are taking a little bit of a step back on the marketing side. So reducing marketing spend, reducing headcount on marketers that would be focused more on channels, you know, versus really on the strategic side. And I think that's where a lot of companies actually need some more help now is on that strategy side. Do we need to pivot? Because the industry that we're in, we're seeing a little bit of a downturn and we're seeing pullback from our customers. So, you know, really being able to lead with that strategic mindset of, hey, how do we take a step back now that there might be not as much customer demand and really pivot and refocus on the customers that still have demand out there? And then once the market comes back to be able to then invest more heavily on the the go-to-market channels. There you have it. How to be a great product marketer on on the job front. Cool. Well, we're going to jump into a few quickfire questions. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Number one, what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? I would say it's about prioritization. I think everybody wants to be able to accomplish everything on their checklist, to be able to go after every opportunity that comes their way. And the best leaders are the ones who are able to look at what is the thing that's going to impact your business the most? What is the most important thing to capture on now before competition comes in and takes away that opportunity? And really important is to be able to say no and not you know, feel bad about hurting people's feelings, but really being able to have an informed decision about why you're investing and what you're investing in. Communicate that out to other people that might be, you know, trying to prioritize their initiatives, but really being able to come with data and insights about why you're prioritizing what you need to. What separates a leader from a manager? So I would say that a leader is somebody who is really thinking about the entire team and or the organization, and less so on the day-to-day of things. So we have at Square leaders who are basically individual contributors or ICs with with employees, and then we have managers. And the distinction is that the individual contributors with employees, they're still leading initiatives themselves. So so they're still working on projects and getting their hands into the thick of things. Whereas from a leader perspective, it is really about having that higher level view of what can enable your team to be successful. How do you provide them with the resources that they need? How do you unblock them if you need to? How do you give them advice? But not really having enough, you know, sort of detail or responsibilities on the individual project level where you're actually sort of micromanaging those projects or leading them on your own. And then also being able to look at what is the vision for the overall organization and how do you structure your team and give your team that guidance in order for them to be able to contribute to that overarching vision. 
What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid given what you know now? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I probably tell myself not to spend so much time worrying about what I'm going to do in the next 10 years. Right? Be really honest about what you're feeling in the moment and you know, be open to the new challenges and the opportunities as they come, but not having to feel like you have to figure out your whole entire life, you know, from that moment. And so, you know, there was a lot of learning that I had coming out of business school. And, you know, even in the first few years of working, you know, post MBA. And I feel like I spent a lot of time worrying about like, how am I going to set myself up for success to retirement? And my you know, career has taken a lot of different twists and turns. And so I would say just being open to what comes to you. What is something you used to believe that you no longer believe? Yeah, I think it is you know, similar to something that I mentioned before, which is you know, that a great marketer can basically sell anything, right? And I think that's something that you know, a lot of advertisers, I think, sort of think about, right? Like you can hire the best advertising firm. You can think about the most creative campaigns. You can throw a lot of money at something and ultimately be able to drive customers to, to your product. When in fact, like if you have a bad product, you the you know all of the efforts that you have from a marketing perspective can't solve that. So you really have to be able to first make sure that you have a product that you feel proud of that you know really meets the the needs of your customers, and and make sure that you sort of meet those extra criteria before you even think about marketing. So I would say, yeah, like even though I'm a marketer you know, a a great marketer can't solve everything if you have a bad product. What don't most people understand about your role as a product marketing leader? I think how much strategy is involved in our role. I think people think about product marketing or just marketing in general, more as the go-to-market side of things. And, you know, thinking about channels and how to best acquire different customers when it really is about having that strategic mindset from the very beginning and being able to inform what that product roadmap should look like. And so I would say, you know, that's really the value that we bring is being able to have that upfront data-driven, customer empathy-driven mindset, and then ultimately translating that into go-to-market when the time is right. What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people do not? It's a good question. And I've seen this at many different companies. Is that marketing isn't something that you can just switch on when you need it to work and then switch back off. So, you know, I'll, during times like these, when we are moving into more recession, I think the first thing to cut is marketing investment. And... For marketing to actually work, it's it, it takes a lot of time and patience and effort to build awareness, to build trust, to build credibility with your customers. And so if you just shut that marketing off, you'll lose that momentum. And I would say that 
you know, when times are tough, these are the opportunities to actually have a continued drumbeat of marketing to make sure that you remain relevant with your customers, that you continue to build credibility. And that like during these times, our competitors are probably also pulling back on marketing spend and investment. And so that's the opportunity for us to actually capture on when media potentially could be cheaper because there's less, less companies that are bidding on that media. And so I would say marketing isn't something that you just use when you need it and you can turn it off when you don't. What is the most important principle to be a successful leader or manager? I think it is to make sure that you are always setting your team up for success. And that involves, number one, making sure that you hire the right individuals for what your team needs. So being able to be really critical about what are the skill sets and essentially the jobs that you need to hire for in order to enable your your team, your entire team to be successful. And then once you have that really set up to be able to just get out of their way, right? To be able to en- enable them to do their job and empower them to actually get the type of career experience that they're looking for. And so I would say set your team up for success first and foremost, and then just let them run. What has changed your perspective on your role as a product marketer? I think it is about just n- not being afraid to, to pivot. And, you know, while we as product marketers are very strategic in, in nature, and we come up with three-year plans and three-year roadmaps, for us to make sure that we are also being able to be flexible and sort of pivot when we need to. And that could involve you know, being really honest about where a product is. And if you've invested in something, you know, for quite some time and, and thrown a lot of resources into it, both budget as well as people resources, to not be afraid to basically pivot and say, hey, this isn't working. This isn't a, you know, a viable product for us. And to be able to sunset that product and then just move on to the next thing. And so I think it's been hard because you have you are emotionally invested sometimes in in these initiatives and your teams have also been really dedicating their careers to potentially building these initiatives. And so for us to build a culture of it's okay if we fail and it's actually really great if we fail and we learn from those failures and take them on in order to progress ourselves in a different direction that can make us stronger. What's an example where you've uncovered a myth or challenged a convention? So I would say it's, you know, similar to the response that I gave, which is, you know, in in times of distress and in times of really where there's an inflection point within the company to be able to really ground ourselves in like, what are the things that we should hold valuable and hold sacred? And that we should not think about just pulling back because we have, you know, a headcount that we need to be able to manage to, or we need to reduce resources or, or budget. But to really be able to say, like, hey, these are the fundamental things that we absolutely need to keep pushing on. And if we don't, like, we basically just like put ourselves backwards, right? And so that could be from a marketing investment perspective that could be from continuing to invest in in a product, but just making sure that we continue to look for opportunities for efficiencies, but also just make sure that we have sacred cows, that we are not 
touching, even if there are you know potential downturns in 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 the market. What's your favorite under the radar networking hack? So I think in a remote environment in particular, um, it's about just leaving comments in Google Docs or leaving leaving comments in Slack in an asynchronous way. And there is an opportunity for us to always meet with individuals one-on-one or to be in the same meetings or to be in person. We have a a hybrid model here where if you want to come to the office, we have offices that you can come into and meet with folks or you can stay remote. And so we give people that option for sure. But for those people that decide to be remote first, how can they continue to build those relationships? And what I've actually found is that if you leave insightful comments in Google Docs and you contribute through Slack messages or you contribute through you know, email or other asynchronous ways, that people will actually get to know you and they'll understand your value and they'll you know, know what your role is within the organization. Those are some great answers there. So we're going to move into the final segment, just to give our audience a sense of any content that you enjoy consuming currently, any blogs, books, or podcasts that you might want to share. Yeah, so I'll give you a a few sort of more on the professional side and then one on on a personal level. So professional side, there's a community of product marketers uh, called the Product Marketing Alliance. They have a bunch of content, they have articles, they have uh, a podcast as well. And so, and you know, it's just an opportunity for product marketers across several different industries to share best practices around common areas that PMMs focus, like pressing and packaging, creating crisp value propositions, thinking about go-to-market planning, uh, points of differentiation, et cetera. So highly recommend that. LinkedIn, honestly. So with my schedule, and, you know, I don't have a ton of time to always follow regularly blogs and podcasts. And I actually find that LinkedIn gives me a really great curated view of the things that I should be focusing in on. And so, you know, one of the, the leaders that I follow is Gokul Rajaram, who was a GM at Square uh, before he actually led our caviar business before caviar was acquired by DoorDash and is still a product leader um, across many different industries. And so I always read what he reads and follow what he follows. From a personal perspective, um, I have just started to dig into this book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. It's by an author named Oliver Berkman. And 4,000 Weeks is the average lifespan of a human. It's about, I think, 77 years. And it's about, you know, we as humans try so hard to be efficient with our days um, by cramming more into any given period um, in order to accomplish more. And what we actually find ourselves doing is maximizing on what we can do as opposed to focusing in on the most important things that we should be spending our time on. And so if we just really embrace how fleeting our time is, that we really only have 4,000 weeks in our entire lifetime, what are the things that we can do better about prioritizing and focusing in on that that truly matter? I love that. And I, it's got me thinking about how many of those weeks I actually have left. On a day-to-day basis or at work, what tools do you find useful for you to manage to those 4,000 weeks? Yeah, so one is Asana. So great project management tool I list out for myself, basically the long list of things that I need to get done and when I need to do them. 
And then honestly, like the other tool that I have is just pen and paper. So every day I look at my Asana board and I see what are the critical things that I need to do. And it's really about focusing. What are the three to four things that I really need to get done? And I write it down on a piece of paper um, in front of me for that day. And I just make sure that there is extreme focus to getting those three to four things done. I love it. I love the simplicity. Anything else you'd like to promote or anything, any launches you got upcoming that you'd like to share with the, the listeners? Yeah. I mean, we have a lot that's coming out from Square. So definitely keep an eye on, you know, our LinkedIn page, our Instagram pages. But, you know, our mission is to be able to provide an ability for all sellers um, from small businesses, mom and pop shops, to all the way through to enterprise businesses and be able to help them start, run, and grow. So I think there's a lot more that's coming out. There's a lot more coming out from our global markets as well. And so I would just definitely keep an eye on that. And Square is still hiring. So for those of you who are interested in product marketing roles or other marketing roles, I highly encourage you to come to our uh, career webpage. And if people want to get in touch with you specifically, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, find me on LinkedIn. You can find me with my full name, Edward Lynn, and I'm happy to, to chat and connect. Ed, this has been an amazing discussion. Thank you for coming on Adventures in Growth. It's been great having you on. Yeah, awesome chat. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.